Hello to you and welcome again to the Dementia Podcast. I'm your host as always, Colm Cunningham, and today I'm pleased to announce a new series. We've talked about the fact that throughout the Dementia Podcast, we hope to build up a collection of themes and issues. And today we start talking dementia, where we're going to initially talk about what is dementia, and we'll probably talk about what is not dementia as well. Um, And we will then, in future episodes, look at different types of dementia and what specific things we need to know about those types of dementia. We appreciate that a dementia diagnosis can be daunting. And so we will ensure that we're connecting you in our show notes with places that you can get advice and support. Today, we'll be talking to some of our clinicians, but in future episodes, we'll also be talking to people with lived experience. And indeed, if you visit DementiaPodcast.com, you will be able to see some episodes that are with people with dementia and their carers and to hear some of their thoughts, which include some of their experience of diagnosis. You can also go to Apple Podcasts and Spotify and various other platforms to find the Dementia Podcasts as well. In 2015, the total estimated cost of dementia was estimated in US dollars at 818 billion. It's now actually estimated to be around a trillion. So it's a significant amount of money that is spent. In fact, if it was an economy, it would be the 18th largest in the world. But how we spend that money and how we support people is another issue. If we look at the size and scale and numbers of people living with dementia, we say currently worldwide there are 50 million people with dementia. Now that's talking about the current prevalence, so you'll often hear people talk about prevalence and incidence. Well, prevalence is the number of people in a certain period of time who are living with a particular condition. In this case, we're talking about the number of people in a year. And we'll talk about incidence in a second. But if we were to talk about a population like the USA to give you a sense of the number of people living with dementia of a population of 330 million, which is the population of the USA, 6.2 million people currently are living with dementia. By 2060, in terms of incidence, which is the increasing number over a period of time that are expected to have dementia, that will be around 13.8 million. So roughly double. So it's quite significant because we know that the incidence is increasing primarily because we have more people living longer and therefore as dementia is primarily a condition that affects older people, therefore you're going to have more people living with dementia. There is some good news in terms of the incidence in that there appears to be some decline in relation to vascular type dementias because some people are stopping smoking and drinking And that is reducing some of the risk factors there. So we've talked about the fact that it's, of course, a significant issue because we have many citizens living with dementia who need support and we need to make sure that the support is right. But let's firstly talk today about understanding what is dementia. And to do that, I'm joined again with our head of clinical services, Professor Steve McFarland who at the Dementia Centre supports us in so many ways. And along with him is Holly Markwell. Holly is our Head of Professional Development at the Dementia Centre, so she makes sure that we are getting the education and knowledge and all that we need to do our jobs. So two very important people for the Dementia Centre. Welcome to you both. Many of you listening may think of dementia as a condition which affects older people. However, it's not a normal part of ageing. 
Holly, we often get confusion about the word Alzheimer's disease and dementia. Can you shed some light on that for us? Absolutely. Um, it's really a constant source of confusion for a lot of people. Um, but when we're talking about dementia, it's a collection of symptoms or a syndrome. Um, and Alzheimer's disease, of course, is one of the diseases that causes that. So um, really, we can think of it in quite simple terms like an umbrella, that dementia is the umbrella term. And underneath that, um, we might have you know, a disease like Alzheimer's disease, vascular dementia, uh, Lewy body dementia, frontotemporal dementia and so on and so forth. Many, many different causes. And I often say that one of the reasons that confusion exists is because a lot of organizations who started to lead the charge in advocacy and recognizing the issue termed themselves Alzheimer's societies or organizations. Uh, nowadays, I do see, for example, here in Australia that uh, uh, Alzheimer's Australia is now called Dementia Australia. So I guess there's a reworking of the way people communicate about all of the conditions that sit under that umbrella? Absolutely. And I think that's been a really important change to recognise those different types because, of course, if you've been diagnosed with one of the slightly more rare types, then you're going to feel disinclined, disinclined to, uh, to, you know, to join up and get support from something called Alzheimer's you know, disease, um, whatever the organisation is. So I think that's been a really important change to recognise all those different forms of dementia, different types of dementia. Now, Steve, I know in future episodes in this part of the series, we're going to look at specific types of dementia, but talking under that umbrella, can you tell us a little bit about exactly what we mean by dementia? Probably equally as important, Colin, to start by talking about what we don't mean by dementia because they've changed the terminology in recent years in some of the major diagnostic classification documents uh, nowadays, they, they refer to major neurocognitive disorder rather than dementia, and uh, a major neurocognitive disorder exists whenever you have a memory or thinking problem that is so severe that it impacts on your ability to manage daily activities. So you can get a major neurocognitive disorder from a head injury or a stroke or from chronic psychiatric illness, but that's quite distinct to what we've traditionally understood as being a dementia, which refers to any one of a hundred or more different neurodegenerative diseases. So a memory or thinking problem that arises in the brain as a result of organic or physical changes in brain cell function uh, and that is progressive over time. And Holly, what are some of the common things that you, when working with people with dementia, hear as problems they're experiencing in the brain? Yeah, look, I guess um, for, you know, many people, but not all, um, one of the most um, common and early changes would be uh, memory loss. So there's a part of the brain that is quite uniquely vulnerable to the type of disease process, particularly in, in Alzheimer's disease. And, uh, and that part of the brain really gives you that kind of running, I guess, commentary on what has happened for you throughout the day. And when that is affected, it means that that short-term memory um, is, is impaired for the person. But dementia is, um, you know, could affect all different types of the brain. For example, it might be that it, it affects the lobes that sort of store the little everyday 
away activities, those patterns of activities that um, we store away for um, for anything that we do throughout the day. Uh, and when the when that is affected, it might be that the person has trouble sequencing. You know, a, what is a familiar task becomes really much more difficult to do. Um, but of course, there could be damage in the parts of the brain, the frontal lobes, for example, that um, give us the social rules of behaviour. Um, or, you know, a stroke uh, in the occipital lobe, obviously, um, you know, removing a, a portion of vision for the person. So it really depends, you know, where that uh, damage is occurring in the brain and to a certain extent, obviously, the type of dementia that the person has. So, Steve, is it wrong to sort of talk in generality um, and be more specific about the type of dementia or are there some overarching common things that affect all people with dementia? There are some overarching commonalities, Colm, and even in you know the classical types of dementia like Alzheimer's disease, you can get very atypical forms that present you know, as Holly mentioned, with frontal lobe features, for example. But it's the early stage symptoms of dementia when we take a history of somebody with cognitive problems that allow us to make our best decision as to what type of dementia it is. As all dementias progress towards the very advanced stages, they they congeal into a, an, an undifferentiated assortment of cognitive problems as, as all parts of the brain ultimately become affected. And Holly... Therefore, we're talking now about the importance of getting the right diagnosis. I've often heard from people with dementia, including on this podcast, that that isn't always handled well. Have you any particular thoughts on what's important if somebody is feeling that there's changes happening and about how they get support? Yeah, that's an interesting question and one that really does depend to a certain extent on the person's age. Um, if you're, you know, if family or you or you are noticing sort of that things are not quite right and you're in your 40s, 50s or even 60s, then dementia is often the furthest thing from um, people's minds. On the other hand, if you're in your 80s and you are experiencing those changes, then people tend to assume the worst and that you're going to need full-time care within six months even though you might have only just started to display some of those kind of characteristic symptoms. So um, there are some real challenges there in the level of insight that the person has. And some people, and people of course, will vary incredibly as to how much information they're ready to receive about their diagnosis at any one point in time. So that makes it quite challenging. For some people, they want to know everything and upfront and they want all that transparency but for other people it's an incredibly challenging time and they really need the information to be chunked into kind of manageable I guess doses if you like so um, it really I think it is just very much a variable depending on the person their age the diagnosis and uh, but normally people um, you know you would want uh, more transparency. There is a great difficulty, Colm, that you're in a, a bit of a wedge depending on whether you're old or young about how long it might take you to get a diagnosis. I mean, the starting point is usually with your GP. And if you go along in your late 40s complaining of cognitive problems, the usual response is, you know, you're too young to have dementia, don't worry about it. Uh, there was a study done in Australia a few years ago that shows that the average delay between people first going to a medical practitioner with concerns about their cognition 
to their GP and ultimately getting a diagnosis with somewhere between two or three years. So it really does uh, depend on the receptiveness of the general practitioner to the being the possibility of a cognitive disorder and making an early referral to somebody who can make the diagnosis. Steve, I may be asking an impossible question given that we've got an international audience here about how people should go about getting a diagnosis. Well, the the first port of call should always be a GP because not all memory and cognitive problems reflect dementia at all. There's important other conditions that can masquerade as dementia. I'm talking about things like anemia and thyroid problems and kidney problems and liver problems, for example, but also anxiety and depression. I I see a number of people in my private practice who are concerned about their cognition but actually turn out to be seriously depressed. And uh, those conditions need to be excluded generally before we move down the pathway to getting a dementia diagnosis. But invariably, the GP is the best place to start. But if people are attending the general practitioner or family physician and, and don't feel that their concerns are being taken seriously, you can always push for a referral or to get a second opinion so that the concerns of uh, your family, friends and yourself can be appropriately responded to and a diagnosis given as early as possible. And I suppose one of the things that's interesting, because of course you know the UK well having been born there while you're now fully fledged Australian, that next specialist might be different because it's not always the same person uh, that is seen as a diagnosis depending on the health system you're living in. That's right. And different people, different doctors refer to different types of specialists for different problems. There's any number of uh, different specialist medical practitioners who are well-placed to make a diagnosis of dementia and to exclude those differentials. For for older persons, for example, a, a referral to a geriatrician is often made. Old age psychiatrists see this as bread and butter as part of their work as well. And uh, often neurologists will also take an interest. So there's no shortage of people who can do the work. Partly it depends on the preferences of the referring doctor and the patient themselves, of course. Not everybody is keen to see a psychiatrist. Holly, one of the things that uh, we're about to jump into is how you treat some of the symptoms. And I'm conscious that My Home, My Life, one of our publications, is about thinking about the non-pharmacological approaches. I guess, what would be some of the things that you commonly think are useful to help a person live well? I think um, one of the key things is to really, um, you know, maintain social relationships. Um, you know, we know that if, uh, you know, if the person is isolated, they're potentially um, going to experiencing experience those symptoms in a, in a more severe way. So I think, you know, maintaining social relationships, trying to adapt what the person enjoys and does, um, you know, often there are very high standards set for, you know, um, past hobbies and, you know, things that the person's enjoyed, but trying to find ways to adapt if possible or, or, or try new things. So um, I guess uh, still maintaining those social connections, uh, which can be difficult, obviously, but, you know, finding ways to actually moderate. So, for example, if the person previously liked, you know, going out to a, you know, busy city centre, it may be that it's more appropriate to go to a, a smaller, you know, more manageable kind of size shopping centre for example. And um, Steve, when it comes to treatment, people often look to you as the doctor. So what would you say are important things to think about? You've already flagged the importance of treating something 
that might be getting in the way of the person's functioning like an, an underlying infection. But when it comes to treatment for dementia, what are the options people have? Look, probably the best option, Colm, at the current state of time is uh, preventative treatment. And this is something that all of us can be doing, you know, taking care of your specific dementia risk factors from middle age onwards, for example. So watching your blood pressure, your cholesterol, ensuring you don't develop diabetes, stopping smoking, modifying your diet to a Mediterranean diet is is the ideal, engaging in regular physical exercise, We have no drug that can prevent dementia, but we know that if people address their modifiable risk factors from middle age onward, we could delay the onset of dementia across the population by about five years, which would halve the overall prevalence. So preventative treatments are far and away the most powerful thing we've got. But to get to the thrust of your question, once you've got a diagnosis of dementia, I think as Holly's alluded to, there's both drug and non-drug treatments. There are cognitive enhancers, medications that can improve memory and thinking for people with Alzheimer's disease and other forms of dementia. There's also treatments to treat the the complications, such as anxiety and depressive symptoms, again, both drug and non-drug treatments. But much of the importance of getting a diagnosis is to try and give people a bit of power over their future. The, The treatments that we currently have aren't life-changing treatments. Even the the newest treatments that have been approved are very, very expensive and unlikely to be available to everybody. So getting an early diagnosis allows people to take on board that education and for their families and carers to take on board the education that will allow them to live uh, as full a life as possible for as long as possible despite having the diagnosis and despite which type of dementia is diagnosed. And Holly... We talked in the introduction about the fact that today in US dollars, one trillion uh, is spent on supporting people with dementia. We know in our work, obviously, there are many things we could be doing smarter and better in the way we do that. If we start with the family and friends, what support can they provide to somebody with dementia? I think the the first thing is to to ask the person and find out what what they what they need. The more we know about dementia, the more we realise that we we really have to actually just start with where the person is at. So um, avoid making those assumptions. You know, there's a um, classic saying of you know if you get, tell tell a friend you have cancer, you get a casserole. Tell tell a friend you have dementia, and suddenly they kind of drop off the planet. So um, be around. Don't don't be frightened about it. Um, you know, learn about dementia um, and, uh, and, you know, ask for how that support is best given. So, Steve, what would be one of your tips in terms of how people might live well? Because obviously you see people coming to your clinical trials um, who are looking at how that will reduce the impact of some of the symptoms. But what are some of your live well tips? Keep doing what you're capable of doing for as long as possible and try and simplify your life to follow a a more predictable routine. In in most types of dementia, Colm, short-term memory and new learning are affected early. So people who have well-established routines where they're doing largely the same thing predictably day by day, week by week, according to a schedule that they've had for some time, they can run on long-term memory and almost on autopilot by doing that. People tend to struggle when new things are thrown at them that require them to adapt or to learn new things or to be more reliant on short-term memory. 
So sticking to a set routine, uh, learning to live within your limitations, but to the maximum that those limitations allow. Maintain hobbies as much as possible. Maintain social connections. Keep listening to music. Keep uh, socialising if, if, if you're uncomfortable socialising outside the home because that requires learning and adaptation. Modify your life to socialise within the home instead in a familiar environment and stick to a familiar routine. Probably the best thing you can do. And Holly, for somebody listening with dementia, what would be some of the advice, uh, any experience you've had of somebody with dementia really taking control of a particular part of their life and it really helping them day to day? Yeah, of course. Um, I think, uh, as Steve has said, you know, um, still finding the the ways, you know, the things that are enjoyable to the person, and still keeping connection with those things. And it is really connection that 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 makes life worth living. So, um, being able to do that, not expecting, uh, you know, to be uh, some sort of you know advocate superhero, perhaps, but you know, taking it a little bit easy on yourself and not uh, catastrophizing. Important for family to do this as well, um, to avoid making those assumptions that uh, you know that everything is, is things are going to go downhill very quickly because often if the person does maintain you know the physical activity and social connections and enjoyable you know hobbies and pastimes things that make life meaningful um, then well-being can be maintained you know really really well and keeping those familiar routines as, as Steve mentioned. Steve, we're going to have further episodes where we're going to look at specific types of dementia. What do you think is important to our listeners who might follow that in terms of uh, what areas we're going to cover? Well, the the big five dementia subtypes, if you like, Colm, uh, I mentioned earlier there were over 100 different causes of dementia, but Alzheimer's disease alone accounts for about 70% of those 100 different causes but uh, close behind Alzheimer's, well, a distant second behind Alzheimer's in truth, is something called vascular dementia, uh, which is caused by blood vessel narrowing in the brain and many strokes. As you get older, you're more likely to have a mixed form of dementia that includes both Alzheimer's and vascular features. Another common form of dementia is called Lewy body dementia, which is related to the dementia that's associated with Parkinson's disease. There's also a condition called frontotemporal dementia as well that affects predominantly the frontal lobes, so that can have behavioral or language symptoms early on. Those would be the big types of dementia that I think it's important to cover in a podcast series such as this. Well, Steve, I'm looking forward to continuing those conversations. It's been great to have you back with us and Holly to have you join us for the first time. Thank you so much for joining us today on the Dementia Podcast. Thanks, Colin. Steve and Holly, it's been a pleasure to have you with us and to kick off such an important area. And I realize that we have touched on so many issues of future episodes of Talking Dementia will address. As I said in the show notes, we will navigate you to your national organization who are so important in helping you get the advice and support you need, particularly with issues of diagnosis. As always, we would love your feedback, ideas and challenges. So please don't hesitate to email us at hello at dementiacenter.com. Thank you so much for listening and bye for now.